like in an industry world, it's my company first. In an ecosystem world, it's coalition first, because in the absence of coalition, we have nothing, right? This is why I say in, in ecosystems, it's really, you have to think about how you create value before you think about how you capture the value. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Well, hello, folks. Garrett here. Uh, we're kicking off this latest episode of the Most Awesome Founder podcast by welcoming back my usual partner in conversational crime, Professor Dries Fahms, Chair of Entrepreneurship Innovation and Technological Transformation at VHU. So together, Dries and I are welcoming a very special guest, zooming in all the way from the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, USA, Professor Ron Adner. Ron is truly a master of his craft and one of the world's leading thinkers and thought leaders on the topic of innovation ecosystems. He's the author of The Wide Lens, What Successful Innovators See That Others Miss, Winning the Right Game, How to Disrupt, Defend, and Deliver in a Changing World, and dozens of publications in the world's best academic journals. Of course, if you want to check them out, you can find them on Ron's website, which is uh, simply ronadner.com. We'll leave those in the show notes if you want to uh, explore and read some of the chapters of his books. Uh, Ron is also a founder. He has a boutique consultancy called the Strategy Insight Group and, of course, is a professor of business administration at the Tuck School of Business at the renowned Ivy League University Dartmouth College. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany, this is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Ron, thank you, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. So as I told you offline, we like to start all of our episodes with a little bit of storytelling. So uh, I'll leave it up to you of where that story begins and where that story ends. But perhaps you could tell us a little bit about where you come from and uh, kind of your trajectory and your journey to where you got to today. Um, so, I mean, kind of the... My intellectual trajectory is basically, I started out with a fascination about all things innovation um, and kind of even, you know, in high school kind of saw this marriage of new technology and business as just something really interesting and cool. Um, I went to college for engineering, my logic being that it's probably easier to get like the hard technical stuff in place when you're young then older. I think that was a correct call. Um, so I, I have a, a, a bachelor's in mechanical engineering. I stayed for a master's in mechanical engineering. And then trying to figure out what to do next, I ended up doing a PhD at a business school rather than continuing in engineering because my, 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 my sense became that, wow, you know, and, and, and by the way, it's been massively confirmed since and it's kind of what's led me on this ecosystem journey was that a lot of the 
blame, if you will, that's put at the feet of particularly engineers and technologists um, is really not their fault, right? That kind of, if you look at the, the landscape of the, even today, the percentage of innovation initiatives that meet the expectations that were set at launch, you know, it's hovered around, you know, 15, 20% for 30 years. And the, the notion that, so that, that, that's a really big gap, by the way, right? So then the question is, all right, so how do you do better? And obviously you think something needs to change to get you closer to that 100% goal. But looking particularly at technology, you can put a, you know, you put a group of engineers in a basement, you give them enough food and water, they will deliver something pretty close to what you asked, right? It could be a little over budget, it could be a little late, a little under spec, what have you. But, you know, within, they'll get to like 90, 95% of what you want. And that kind of motivated me to push against anything that says, ah, oh, the problem with innovation is we can't do the technology. Right, like you can't improve that by ten percent and expect to close this eighty percent gap in success, and so that kind of led to this search of, well, so what are we missing? And going through, all right, so it's not the engineering side. Much as we want to talk about execution, man, particularly you know the last fifteen years, companies know what they're doing. You know, much as we want to say that, oh, you know, we need more customer insight, boy. We listen to the customer an awful lot. So it's not that we couldn't do a better job on these dimensions, but that's unlikely to explain this massive gap. And so that's where kind of my mindset shifted to, well, maybe there are these other dependencies that we're underinvested in. And that led to this notion of, ah, some of these innovations that we look at create value on their own. So it really is about, can you get it right? But many of the more exciting things today and really the last 20 years have to do with interactions with partners that, that aren't necessarily planned in the early process. And that's where this notion of we need to think about ecosystems strategically and proactively. That's, that's how I got to where I am today. I mean, this, that's, the, that's what I've been examining through different parts of my life. As you say, the teaching, my research, consulting, everything I do is focused on this question of how do we make sense of an interdependent world? Um, and put structure on. Maybe, Ron, can you, can you give an example uh, of what you described? So an example of a, of a company or a project where actually execution was great, uh, where the engineers had a great product, and where in the end the innovation failed because the ecosystem was not ready. So, I mean, we, 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 can, we can think of a lot of examples, right? Whether it's, you know, HDTV in the 1980s, where we had great technology, but for you know, for the broadcasting, but the cameras weren't ready. Um, you can think about, by the way, the same story of, 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 of virtual reality today, you know, much as you want to say, you know, we have these devices, but it's the rest of the system that's not in place. The, the kickoff story in, in, in my first book, The Wide Lens, um, was about the tire industry to really try to establish that this is not just a a tech type interaction. So I guess my favorite story on this out of wide lens is um, in the 1990s, Michelin and then closely followed by 
the other leading tire manufacturers set up uh, a new technology for run flat tires that was going to be the next radial tire. Everybody, not just at Michelin, but in the industry and not just in the tire industry, the car manufacturers were on top of this. They were putting in a standard equipment and it turned out, and, you know, if you're interested in the details, you could read this, ch- the, the, the chapter actually is on my, my website, as you mentioned on ronadner.com, that the, 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 the hidden piece was that the service garages, it's not that they couldn't fix these tires. I mean, the, the, the whole excitement about this kind of run flat tire was designed and developed in order to be repairable, unlike any other run flat tire. That's why it was going to be this big mass market win. But the, cert, the, the incentives for the service garages turned out to have been poorly thought through. And that's what made it so interesting. It's not that the tire manufacturers didn't think of the garages, right? We, 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 we like to tell those kinds of stories like, oh, here's a great company. Look at this stupid mistake. And that's why they failed. You know what? Great companies aren't stupid. They're either great or they're not great. But so we, we kind of delude and dilute our sensibility when we look for something really obvious, right? So the, 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 this, the run flat story hinges on, you know, Michelin, of course, knew about the garages. And of course, they even created the equipment that would allow the garages to repair the equipment. And every time a garage repaired one of these tires, they would make more money. That was all taken care of. But the breakdown was that the timing of success for the garages was totally off kilter with everyone else in the system, right? So if you sell this new component in a car, on day zero, the component maker, the tire makers make money, the the car manufacturers make money, the users are happy, but the garage doesn't see a dime until somebody gets a flat tire a year later. And so the ability to maintain the garage's interest is something that you can't take for granted, right? And this is the difference between just looking at a list of stakeholders versus understanding how an ecosystem actually comes together, right? And, and I think, so, so those are examples of, it's not that we don't know what the pieces are, it's that we're not paying sufficient attention to them up front. And then what's surprising is not that there's a piece, it's that it didn't stick or it didn't actually come together according to plan. And that is a breakdown of, of strategy. Yeah. And so we already now started to talk about, about ecosystems and in both of your books, The White Lands and the more recent book, uh, Winning the Right Game, uh, the, the notion of ecosystems is really the core notion in your books. And actually, I, I would say that today it's a very popular concept, ecosystems. <laughs> I was last week on a conference in Italy and I think every presentation had the word ecosystem in it, which I think is great for you because it means you're a leading scholar on a popular topic. But I also think there's a kind of a danger that now you might get a bit frustrated that everybody is abusing this concept. So can you maybe for our audience clearly explain what you mean by an innovation ecosystem and what we should understand with it? Yeah. So I I think you're right. You know, when I started on this, you know, it was a very niche term today, you know, it's a term that's lost all meaning, right? So it's like disruption, right? There was a moment in time where that meant something very specific (laughs) and these attacks from below. And then, It was like, if you didn't put it as a modifier before whatever you're saying, people wouldn't pay attention. Um, So you're right. I I think there is, um, by the way, it's not just in the academic world. It's also in the business world that this term is thrown around endlessly. And, um, you know, my my line on this is that, you know, you can't can't be in a conversation today 
by the way, academic or business, and not have people use the term ecosystem. But 95% of the time, you could take out the word ecosystem from the sentence, and you could put in the word mishmash, you wouldn't lose any meaning, right? And, and what's interesting about that, that's a, you know, that's a little tongue-in-cheek, I think it's also true, but what's interesting about that is, is what it highlights is how aware and sensitive people are to the fact that today, you can't go it alone, but the fact that you can use you know, any word instead of ecosystem means that, 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 that people are lost for something specific beyond. So I'll give you much. So my definition of an ecosystem, we can unpack it, um, is so the, the simplest definition that I have. And again, you know, for those interested, this is in chapter one of winning the right game, also <laughs> on this website. Um, so an ecosystem is the, the structure through which a multiplicity of partners interact to deliver a value proposition. Okay, that's my definition. And so there are three different parts to that definition that have, at least for me, given a lot of clarity. Um, the first is that it's anchored in the notion of a value proposition, right? It's not, it's not anchored in a company. So it's not an Apple ecosystem or an SAP ecosystem. It's, you know, Apple participates in multiple ecosystems and it turns out that the ecosystem for the value proposition of a device to let you access data is very different from health or financial services. So the first part is it's anchored in a value proposition. The second part is that there are a multiplicity of partners that you need to think about. And the third, meaning it, if you can break down the interaction to a dyad, if you can look at these interactions and just look at the buyer supplier here, buyer supplier there, then you don't need to evoke the notion of an ecosystem. We have all kinds of existing tools and technologies for thinking about. And then the third has to do with the structure through which these partners interact. And it's really when the structure is being changed that the notion of an ecosystem becomes focal. Right? So here's, like, here, here's a mistake a lot of people make. They think that if you have a lot of interdependence around you, you're in an ecosystem. And there's no, so, I mean, the, the reason I say it's a mistake is because you could look at the car industry from 1980s, 1990s, you could look at the complexity of their supply chains and you can't say there's not a lot of interdependence, right? The thing that makes the car industry different today is it's not necessarily that there are more, you know, we had first, second, third, seventh tier suppliers, but you could look at the relationship between your fourth tier supplier and your third tier supplier and just look at that, right? We could do like the old, you know, make, buy, the, the bargaining power story. Everything sat in this industry structure, whereas today the issue is that those seats are being moved around, right? It's, you know, it was always in the Michelin story, it was always clear that Michelin makes the tire and it gives the tire to, uh, you know, to, to Daimler. And Daimler sends, sells the car, whereas today, oh, well, you know, the tire companies want to have a more direct relationship with the end users and they want to sell intelligence to trucking fleets, right? So that's what's moving us into this ecosystem world where now we need strategies that help us understand and conceptualize structures and different scenarios around structure. So like the, the big difference between old style industry strategy 
and ecosystem strategy is that industry strategy, you know, you won by having more scale and seizing more control. Whereas in an ecosystem, your first job is alignment, right? So an ecosystem strategy is an alignment strategy. And that's, and, and I, in some ways I'd say, if that's not what you're talking about, then you may not, you're probably using the word ecosystem without any need for it. Yeah. You're just using jargon. Yeah. And, and as, as you say, ecosystems is about creating alignment and maybe less about creating control or dominance or whatever. What does that mean for managers if, if that's now the game they need to play? That seems to be a very different game from the game that, to be honest, we have been teaching our MBA students in class. That was all about Porter and how can you kind of create your industry in such a way that you can control and dominate your industry. And you seem to claim a different dynamic. What is yeah. your idea about that? So, I mean, look, it's not that control doesn't matter, but control is an endpoint. It's not a starting point. Um, the, and, you know, traditional strategy, when we think about control, it's, you know, it's, it's, again, it's like make or buy, right? It's like, there's a piece and now I'm going to own it instead of negotiate in that channel. Whereas here, it's like, I need to create the piece or I need to move the pieces around. I need to convince these independent partners to move around. And so kind of, this was, this was for me in, in, in winning the right game, like one of the biggest discoveries, um, your question about, you know, so what does this mean for managers is, you know, so strategy people don't usually talk about leadership, right? It's, you know, it's like, and it's not because, you know, we don't think leadership matters. It's because, you know, the advice we usually give is pretty generic. So yeah, get a good leader, right? If you can get a better leader, that's even better, um, right? It's not, we don't get into the, the psychology of, it. but the big aha is that actually in a world of ecosystems, you need a different kind of leader, right? In an industry world, if you think about the kinds of, uh, you know, so Jim Collins, I'm a huge fan of, right? And the idea of a, of, of a level five leader, that is a leader who puts, who's visionary and also puts their company ahead of themselves, right? And that's, you know, the heroes that he celebrates. That's, that works in a world where what you need to lead is your company. But in a world where you need to line up other partners, a leader who always puts their company first, you know, that's not a very convincing coalition builder, right? And so depending on the world you're in, if you're more in, a, in an industry world, then you want more of an execution mindset. If you're in an industry world, then what you need your leaders is to have more of an alignment mindset. And that meaning that the trade-offs that they will prioritize will be different, right? So like in an industry world, it's my company first. In an ecosystem world, it's coalition first, because in the absence of coalition, we have nothing, right? This is why I say in, in ecosystems, it's really, you have to think about how you create value before you think about how you capture the value. And that, you know, in companies large and small, that's a shift in mindset, right? Like you need to explain to your board why... You're, you're making less today in the expectation that you will grow the pie tomorrow and then ideally build towards a even stronger position the day after, right? And that's why I'm saying it's not that there's no control in these ecosystems, but you can't, it can't start with a grab for control because that'll scare everybody off. Control kind of might emerge from a clever strategy over time. 
Ron, I'm curious about the the who participates in ecosystems because as a as an early stage startup guy, the language that you're using here, you know, talking about talking about alignment, um, resonates very much. Like this is the this is the language in the domain of startups. You know, you're in the world of exploration, not exploitation. You're trying to create value propositions that create win-win-win scenarios. Um, you're you don't have the leverage of a a, a large entity. Um, when you're talking about um, these ecosystems, are you really kind of taking, it, it just sounds to me like you're taking kind of the, the language and the strategies of the challengers and kind of bringing that into the world of incumbents. Um, it, it, is that the case or is this something that applies, you feel that it applies to new ventures as well as more established ones? I think it is even, it is massively more important for new ventures than for established ventures, massively. Um, the alignment challenge is no different. As you say, what you're bringing to the game is different. And the one thing that you don't have as a startup is a fire hydrant flow of cash from your core business that will hide all the mistakes that you're making. So, you know, large companies do this and, and even like the most, the, look, the most successful companies on the planet, Google, Apple, they make more money than anyone. They're failing in ecosystems outside their core, left and right, but they can afford to mess around for decades and then something, something will happen. A startup, a startup needs to figure out alignment, but what they don't have is the luxury of time, right? And kind of, I have to tell you, like one of the, the terms that I choke on these days is the notion of pivoting, right? Oh, you know, pivot. It's like, you know, my line on this is every time someone says the word pivot, a founder loses equity, <laughs> right? That's, I mean, think about the implication of that. Yeah. So, right, I mean, essentially, I think what's happened in the startup world is that there's been, maybe this is putting it too strongly, but it's like an abdication of strategy, meaning you come up with some insight and now just throw stuff against the wall, see what sticks, A-B test, just iterate, iterate, adapt, adapt, and that, by the way, much of that advice, by the way, like the blitz scaling type story, if you look at it, it all originates in the world of, you know, cloud-based software firms who are going after end consumers, right? Where really it's, can you find product market fit? Can you figure out what that end consumer wants? And the reason iteration is more okay there is because you can piss off 50,000 people on your website and it doesn't matter. You're throwing back in the ocean, you know, you're launching a new website. I show, you know, A is good, B is bad. I lose everybody on the D arm. It doesn't matter. Because consumers are, you know, they come and go and they have short memories. Partners whose business you're trying to integrate into are a totally different world. Right? If you get me to collaborate with you and you screw it up, you don't get a third, fourth, fifth iteration with me. Right? Not least because even if I myself as an individual in the second company believe in you, my ability to convince my colleagues that we should continue the collaboration and allocate resources to it rather than something else, that, you know, that, that, that erodes much more quickly. And so I actually think that for startups, it is massively important to 
think through all these ecosystem dynamics as carefully as possible. And then just to be clear, it's not that then you don't make mistakes. It's that, you know, you eliminate all the avoidable failures so that you have resource left over for the genuine surprises. Um, but I think there's, there's, it's interesting. There's been like this shift where startups think that, you know, are being like the messaging is to be, you know, nimble means you try a lot of stuff. When no, it should be, you're a founder. You don't have administrative overhead. You should be spending a lot of time thinking about this stuff with your team. And then when you really have the plan, that's when you go in. And, you know, you're going to iterate from there, but you're much more likely to succeed. Um, and you're, you're much more likely to use your, your, your fewer, more precious resources more wisely. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry if that sounds a little religion, but it, um, it's just, it's so, it's so painful, right? And by the way, here we are, you know, summer 2022, the tide is, you know, the, the, the capital tide is receding, right? And what, what you're seeing now, by the way, is all these, these funds who were so willing to give money up front. Now, founders coming in for a second round, a third round, and the, the, you see what should have been the natural stinginess. Right? And if you're still if you're still pivoting, you're massively in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So it's, yeah. it's never I mean, too late I, to build a strategy. Yeah, I think you nailed it on the head too, is that you know, so much of the discourse in the startup world is built around B2C you know, B2C technology, you know, and as a founder of a, an enterprise SaaS, like you don't have, you absolutely don't have that luxury and you're, you're leveraging, you know, hopefully good strategy. You're still hypo hypothesis testing, but you know, you're trying to build good strategy in place, align, align incentives with your partners, especially if you're dealing with companies much bigger than you, otherwise you're, you're dead in the water. So um, as usual, Dries, I, I had to hijack your the topics that you want to with some uh, some startup questions. <laughs> um, but you know, so the, the last thing I'll, I'll say, by the way, is I don't think I've clarified it. So this is more than just like concept and like you know, oh, you know, you should be thinking about strategy, right? So part of what you know, the last twenty years of my life have been is developing the concepts, but also the, the, the tools and the frameworks that, you know, you can sit down with your team and work through these issues, right? It's like, you know, what's our adoption chain? You know, how do we, you know, how do we draw out our ecosystem? How do we, how do we think about a value architecture? How do we think about timing? These are, you know, there, there's, you know, tools and frameworks, you know, in each one of these books that are, I think they're, you know, are essential for effective action, right? And the, the other thing you said, you know, in the B2B world, the other thing you're leveraging as a founder is your personal relationships, right? Your early customers are all people that you happen to know from life. And again, you know, how many times can you disappoint your buddy before they tell you, hey, you know, it's been great, but we need, you know, but my company needs to move on. Right. Again, in B2B world, strategy matters infinitely more. And by the way, in B2C world, that's a good thing too. Yeah. And, if, and if we talk about these, these tools and frameworks that you have in your book about, to develop a good strategy and a good ecosystem strategy, I think one of the, the core notions that you emphasize in both books is the notion of what you call a minimal viable ecosystem. 
which when I was reading your book, I first found quite a counterintuitive solution because when you think about ecosystems, you quickly think about, I need to make sure that there are a lot of partners involved, but actually in your book, you're, you're making almost a counter argument. Can you explain a bit more what you exactly mean with minimal viable ecosystems and why you think it's so important for a good ecosystem strategy? Yeah, um, that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a great question, and it you know again it's and I'd say it's as, as you say it's counterintuitive compared to the visions that we try to encourage people to have and the language that we use, right? So and and this is in some ways by the way the difference between you know, thinking in terms of ecosystems and thinking in terms of platforms, right? So we all like have this notion of, let's just get a lot of people into one place. And as long as they know that it's my place, good things will happen. Um, it turns out that it's very hard to get a lot of partners to show up in a single place at a single moment in time, one, and if they do, to get them to acknowledge that you're the leader. Okay, that's just, if you frame it that way, you realize how insane that is. So the, the, the key, a key to thinking about ecosystem strategy is recognizing that ecosystems need to be constructed, right? That means that they're built, which means it doesn't happen all at once. And the kind of the three core principles that, you know, I've identified for constructing ecosystems, start with the notion of a minimum viable ecosystem, MVEID. Which, so remember, the ecosystem, to, to, to go into this venture, you have an idea of what you want to build towards, right? You have an idea of the different partners, the structure of interaction, et cetera. But what you need to realize is that when you start, it's just you alone in a room. So your minimum viable ecosystem is going to ask the question of, all right, so what, what is the smallest number of people, which could be just me, but you know, what, what are the one, other, one or two other partners that I can start with that not that are going to create all this amazing value, but that give me some foothold in the space from which I can attract the next partner, right? So the early journey of ecosystem construction is not to get customers, it's to get partners, right? And in some ways, the role of the customer in the early building of an ecosystem is to give you evidence that will convince additional partners to join, right? It's only in the later stages as you're getting closer to what you had envisioned as the purpose of this thing, that you're creating value that begins to be exciting to customers in the mainstream. So, the, so, so the, the principles are, you know, minimum viable ecosystem, then your plan for staged expansion, right? Which is how do I, how do I think about why I want the third partner third rather than fourth, right? Or rather than second as well, you know, I'd like them to be second, but they won't come until I have, you know, partner B in place. And once I have the third one, then I can attract the fourth, right? So it's a staged expansion. And then the, the, the final twist, which is the key to scaling ecosystems, is this notion of ecosystem carryover, which is if you're an incumbent, you're already operating somewhere else. So you're already present in some other ecosystem. And if you're a startup, your question becomes really quickly, how fast do I establish, my, establish myself in one ecosystem? And then 
carryover is porting over relationships from one ecosystem to help jumpstart your MVE in the next ecosystem, right? And, and, and the, the, the thing that does, by the way, is it also highlights this question of, as you're thinking about an ecosystem, how do you think about the boundary? Like, how do you identify, you know, what's one ecosystem and you're moving to the next one versus I'm just growing, 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 um, right? And that, again, you know, the, 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 the methodologies in, in particularly winning the right game are focused on this, but it comes back down to that definition of value proposition, partners, and structure. If those are changing, you're probably crossing bound ecosystem boundaries and you need to rethink how to reestablish an MVE rather than just assume because I'm big here, everyone in the world will join me there. Can you maybe give a specific example of a company that successfully did this kind of ecosystem carryover? So using their existing ecosystem to kind of kick off a new ecosystem? Yeah. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you, you know, I'll give you a positive example and a negative example, right? <laughs> so a positive example is, and these are, these are going to be bigger firms, right? Because those are firms people are familiar with, but you know, a positive example is, you know, how Amazon, you know, moves from retail into, so you know, there's a, a, a really intriguing uh, case study on Alexa, the voice uh, speaker that Amazon launches. And the carryover that Amazon uses to take its prime users and prime music to launch this smart speaker into the market and porting over you know, their retail users and the music streaming service that they have to enter the smart speaker market as a, you know, a, a bad speaker with a bad music service from which they're then able to add more partners and add developers and move into hardware integration, et cetera. Right. So that's, you know, so that's, that's an example of, of moving from one ecosystem, the retail ecosystem into this product ecosystem. Right. You can think of, I mean, you know, the way Uber, you know, all their, you know, terrible habits and unethical practices, they're still, they did a couple of in interesting things. Um, but, you know, for Uber, the ecosystem boundaries very clearly the way they manage themselves were, um, the boundaries were set by geography, right? So I start in San Francisco, but then go to go to New York, I need to reestablish myself, you know, and what do I carry over? You know, I carry over some technology, I carry over maybe some airport demand, but then I need to reestablish myself, right? And the reason it's important to know that you need to reestablish yourself is because you invest in a different way when you realize you need to restart versus you just assume that you grow, right? So the negative example I have this, you know, I, this, this very intriguing discussion about Apple's failures in moving into the mobile payments ecosystem, right? Where on paper, my God, you know, they, they have the phone, they have all the users, they have all the credit card information, and every other company in the world has an app that they allow Apple to approve for the app store. How could they not lead this ecosystem? And it turned out that when the value proposition shifted from giving people access to data on a device to managing payments, some of these key partners needed to be reconvinced, right? And so like all the retailers, you know, the major retailers set up their own mobile payment system saying, you know, I'm okay, you know, to have an app on your store where people can see what's available at the store, but I'm not going to pay you two and a half percent and not see the information that my customers have, right? So what's interesting there is 
So, you know, the kind of the, the three, you know, the mobile payments requires, you know, the phone manufacturer, by the way, the same story holds for Google as well. It was a big failure with Google Pay. Um, you know, you need the phone makers, you need the telcos, you need the retailers, you need the banks, you need the consumers. Um, and what's interesting, you know, I go into this chapter is like that there was a very clever strategy for aligning the banks, but it was the retailers that were taken for granted. And that taking for grantedness, just like the garages in the Michelin story, you know, in, in, in if I use you know, wide lens terms, right, you have to think about your adoption chain. Right. So beside your end consumer, who else needs to buy in in order for you to not to deliver your product or your service, but to deliver your value proposition? Right. And the key to understanding how to think in adoption chains is to recognize that any member of your adoption chain. Right. So these are people who are critical to deliver your proposition. They are the most important player. Right. A break anywhere in the chain breaks the chain everywhere. And so, again, you know, Garrett, from like a startup perspective, the more you can surface these dependencies and build strategies to address them up front, the less surprises you're going to have. Um, and and the, the, the final bit on that mobile payment story is, so the retailers, obviously, their effort at creating a mobile payment platform was a disaster, okay? Total failure. But just because someone fails doesn't mean that they're going to choose to follow you. Right. Instead, they're like, all right, then we're not going to play this game. And certainly in the U.S., it's been like, you know, pulling teeth to get the retailers to encourage customers to use mobile solutions. Right. COVID helped that along. But, you know, that was COVID. That was not Apple's strategy. And I, I think in that way, we come to another concept of your latest book that I think was very interesting and that you call the ecosystem trap. Yes. Uh, can you explain a bit more what you exactly mean by that? So the, yeah, no, so, you know, it's, uh, there's, it, it, again, sorry, so much goes back to like primes and basics, right? So the definition of an ecosystem that I, you know, that we discussed earlier, right? It's anchored in a value proposition, not in a company. If you anchor your definition of an ecosystem in your corporate identity, then you are very likely to succumb to what I call the ego system trap, right? The ego system is what happens when you define your ecosystem around yourself, which by the way, is very, you know, from, a, from a, an academics perspective, that's, you know, that's what happens when you start thinking about an ecosystem as a network, right? When you apply, you know, network tools, you know, you have, you know, what we call ego is the central node. And then we look at the connections around them. Um, but presuming centrality is a really good way to blind yourself to the need for alignment and to subtle changes in structure where those changes, where those links aren't directly tied to you, but are between other players. Um, so, you know, so it's actually so the, 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 the Apple payment story is, you know, the example of here's what an ecosystem trap looks like, right? And like the more, and, and the more successful you are, the more likely you are to fall into it. Although I have to say, you know, I hear founders talking about their plans and they are, <laughs> it's easy for them to follow in, fall into this as well, right? Like the, you know, the, the presumption that I'm going to do this and then, you know, I'll become, I hear this, you know, I've heard this like five times in the last six months. 
you know, our plan is to become the sales force of X. <laughs> right? And it's, and it's like, yeah, okay, but you need to realize Salesforce didn't start off as this massive platform. Right? The, it's a beautiful story of ecosystem construction that ends with, and then we opened up a platform and people saw a lot of value in playing with us. But it's not, we started with, hey, everybody, we're going to be the platform. You know, why, <laughs> why don't you follow our orders and give me a percentage of every transaction? Um, so, yeah, the ecosystem trap is if you're successful in one ecosystem, ecosystem it make, you're particularly vulnerable to it. But even at the outset, it's something that you want to be careful about. right? And again, it, it comes back to how central do you see alignment in your strategy? Right? If all you're thinking about is how awesome your product is going to be for your customer, not recognizing the hard work it's going to take to line up your partners, you're going to be more vulnerable to that. And because when I was reading your chapter on that part, I, I really had to think about Meta and their current Metaverse strategy, where at least I had a bit of feeling that an ecosystem trap might be out there. Would you agree or, or do you have a different opinion about that? Well, you know what? It's interesting, right? Because uh, Facebook, before they changed their name to Meta, um, right, to cover up a different disaster, um, right, the, the solution of democracy around the world, um, you know, they had a massive failure when they tried to launch the Libra currency. And if you look at Libra, that was classic ecosystem. I actually had a case study I was going to sketch out on that. Um, the, you know, Facebook becomes Facebook through a pathway that is very much consistent with ecosystem construction, right? They start with an MVE, which is we're only going to make this service available to on college campuses, right? We can build these micro networks. Then they open it up to people outside of colleges. Then they have enough mass. They open it up to uh, commercial entities. It's only then that they start advertising, you know, allowing for advertising. After they have advertising, they open it up to media, right? Because now it's attractive for newspapers to do this, right? And that's how they become, you know, Facebook, right? They have a technology issue with how do we move to mobile? But the, the, from an ecosystem perspective, that's how they live and they become this communications Currency, a totally different value proposition, right? To, 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 to have ignored, you know, the, the government regulators in the way that they did, right? It was just asking for a disaster, but it came from, hey, you know, our population is, is larger than any, you know, than the two largest companies, countries in the world can't even amount, you know, are a fraction of us. Of course, we should be in charge. And no, right? You have... And so, you know, the question with, with the metaverse, you know, which is really, if you had, you know, seems, you know, yet to be defined, but the expectation that they will be the natural place is, I think it's, it's, it's naive and, and I haven't seen any move from them towards alignment of critical partners yeah. to suggest, you know, maybe there's something happening secretly um but maybe i'm missing it but you know i i am not seeing enough about ecosystem alignment right more the, the, the discussion about technology more about you know the end consumer and um you know, somebody asked me the other day about oh you know do you think that they'll 
they'll, they'll play a meaningful role in education, right? So this is one of the settings that they're talking about. It's like education is so different from like, you know, gossipy communication, right? It's so different from media. And each one of these, like, you know, think about all the trust issues that show up in education, that if you really were going after that, you would need to activate a whole new set of partners to deliver the proposition. And again, you know, maybe it'll, the one thing, you know, to Garrett's point earlier, you can never count them out, right? Because a company that's making that much, that much money in the back office can screw up for 15 years and then show up and surprise you. Like they can, at some point they'll get things right, right? You know, Microsoft, right? People, you, you know, dismissed Microsoft for 20 years and then, you know, they reemerged, you know, they reemerged as a, you know, real ecosystem player under Nadella. Mm. Uh, but, you know, for 15, 20 years, they were struggling in new ecosystems. But as long as they were making money at home, it was okay. So I'd say the same, you know, so I, I'm not dismissing the possibility of, of you know, Facebook slash Meta being successful, but I'm questioning this, the strategy they've, sh- they've shared with the world today. Yeah. Um, and I guess the only thing I'll say there is it's a, it, it, it shouldn't be amazing to us that firms don't have this kind of strategy on the inside, right? And this is like, you know, professor to professor, if you think about what, not, you know, what we've been teaching for 40 years and what we're still teaching today, right? It's not strategy for this kind of decision-making, right? And, and, and I think, you know, if I go back to what Garrett was saying earlier, you know, the reason that startups have kind of dismissed strategy you know, formal strategy as a meaningful activity is because the strategy tools that we that dominate the discussion were all built for an industry world, right? You think about Porter, you think about Christensen. It was like it was all competing inside this well-defined box, and how do you do it? Whereas the whole startup story is, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna change the value proposition, I'm gonna change the structure, and in the absence of tools for that, you're gonna you, you're gonna wing it. Right. And so, you know, my t- last 20 years of my life, and they're like, well, here are some tools that I hope will be helpful. Garrett, I just want to briefly point to you. Do you think these kind of tools, like a minimal viable footprint, the ecosystem trap, are these things that you think are relevant for you, more like in the startup world, creating new companies? Can, can you associate with them, or, or does it feel more like something in the world of the big companies? I actually, the former completely. I, I mean, I think most of the the things that we've talked about today are, to me at least, are very much the domain of startups and the way that we think about, you know, I think um, as a as a challenger with limited resources, like you, you aren't trying to establish centers of power, right? You're trying to navigate through these these forces, and and that means trying to secure strategic partnerships to align incentives with the bigger players in in industry and that and I think that's a case whether you're B2B or B2C. The same even goes if you're, you know, doing performance marketing, right? You've got to look at what else is out there and and find a space where you're not stepping on the wrong toes and uh, and ruffling too many feathers. So, yeah, to me this is very much um, co- concepts that are are very natural and 
you know, something that I think a lot of startup entrepreneurs think about, but maybe people in larger, larger incumbent organizations don't, right? Because they are driven, maybe this, uh, you know, I've never worked for a big company, so I might be talking out of my ass here, but like, you know, when, when you have all of that power and all of that, you know, control and ability around you, you get a little bit blinded, perhaps you get a little bit blinded by it. So, um, yeah, to me, this seems, seems very natural. It, it, what I find really interesting though is, you know, I never, I never studied business. I actually came from a background of development economics and, you know, I worked, I worked in emerging markets for a long time on economic development and, you know, the, the core tenets of what we did were, was around, you know, stakeholder engagement, you know, empowerment, um, giving people voice that would otherwise not have them, having a, a position of, of empathy. You know, I think in the startup world, you start seeing some of that with like the tenets of design thinking, right? Taking this em empathic approach to the other players in the ecosystem. So to me, this is what, what you're talking about, Ron, you know, takes a lot from these worlds as well. It's it's like what uh, Schumacher said: economics of it, as if people mattered, right? It's you know maybe it's people and institutions, but understanding the needs, the values, and the perspectives of the the people that are in your orbit um, are critical to long term success. Yeah, no, I think you know, I actually have a line about this, which is, you know, traditional strategy like the metaphor is military. Whereas ecosystem strategy, you know, it's much more from the playbook of diplomacy, right? How do you, how do you move these parties that actually have independence? And, you know, I think, look, it's not that people in big companies don't think about this. It's not that people in small companies don't think about this. Um, it's that big or small, generally, what we're missing is the language to be able to discuss this with other people crisply in a way that lets us consolidate perspective and get to a shared understanding and a consensus, right? The reason it seems less of an issue in startups is because the startups that fail disappear, we don't talk about them. And the startups that succeed, you know, the founder needs to have enough of this intuition and then has enough charisma to be able to like through magnetism, get the team to move in the direction of their intuition, right? The reason that you want tools and frameworks is to be able to move that intuition outside of yourself with greater efficiency, right? And this is partly why, you know, as startups, you know, break beyond 50, 60 people, it gets really frustrating because what we were able to do on the basis of, you know, we call it trust, but, you know, trust basically is I don't understand what you're talking about, <laughs> right? If I understood you, I wouldn't need to trust you. We would just know what we're talking about, right? And that's where kind of language and concept and framework really matter. Um, you know, there's no, again, there's no startup that has succeeded without getting this stuff right. The, the question is, well, how did they get it right? Like the vast majority that you ever heard of certainly weren't using these tools, but I would argue that if they had, they'd have gotten there more efficiently. You know, there's this really, um, so in, 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 in winning the right game, I have a this discussion of Spotify and in the sense of ecosystem defense, which is kind of intriguing. People should read that. But there's a, an ecosystem construction story about Spotify that didn't make it into the book. Um, 
that, I mean, really kind of, I think, illustrates the point. So, you know, Dan Eck has the idea for streaming as a better solution uh, for music lovers than piracy. And, you know, he spends a year and a half building the technology and gets it right. And the, the plan was, and the effort was, all right, now I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to music companies and I'm going to show them this is the better way. And his initial ask was, okay, license your music to me. Global, because everyone in the world should be listening this way, right? He had very, very clear vision. And naively, that was his ask. And for two years, they told him, take a hike. Like, we're, of course, we're not going to do that, right? Regardless of that, there's no way we take a risk on this. Spotify only gets started when Eck realizes that what he should, when he changes his ask to give me a license just for Sweden. Now, the reason that the music companies are willing to give Eck a license for Sweden is because no one in Sweden is buying any music whatsoever. Like Sweden is the country where people are pirating music more than anywhere, right? To the point that, you know, when Pirates Bay, which is, you know, this big, you know, illegal download service gets shut down, the Swedes vote in the pirate party to their parliament, right? So this is a brilliant MVE. This is a brilliant starting point because as a, as a music company exec, the, the risk to me of giving you music rights for Sweden are zero, right? I'm making nothing. If I make a, if you make a penny, it's a win, right? Whereas opposed to giving you the rights to the U.S., who if you get that wrong, I'm dead. And so the, it, it took two years for Act to back into the need for an MV, right? And from there, the next step was, you know, we, it's interesting. He lines up a couple of different players within Sweden to figure out how to do this. Um, and then, you know, he gets a licenses to you know, another country, two other countries. It's a staged rollout. And it's only like four or five years after the Swedish rollout that they go back and try to experiment with permission in the U.S. Right. And throughout this, they're adding new partners. Right? Like Facebook was a critical partner for, for Spotify to roll out in the U.S. And by the way, it was only then that Spotify became a big deal. Right. So we have this long period of ecosystem construction where what you're doing is lining up your partners and, you know, your customers are there really partly as customers, but mostly as evidence for partners. And again, there's a, there's a systematic way of, of going through this. The, 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 only, the only additional caveat I'll put on this is that, so when I lay this out, most people's reaction is, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And then they think that if you want to pursue this, the challenge is, all right, I, should, I need to find my, my minimum viable ecosystem. And so the, the corollary for you guys is there's a difference between finding a minimum viable ecosystem and the right minimum viable ecosystem for you. Right? So again, kind of the, my cute line in the book is, you know, you think it's finding a needle in a haystack, but really it's finding a needle in a stack of needles. You need to know what you're looking for, right? So just having something to put on the ground, that's easy, right? Having it fit into this bigger plan and having a, a coupling of the MVE with staged expansion and carryover, that's where, you know, that's where efficient strategy implementation 
relies on you know a strategy conceptualization. Um, so it's the 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 one danger is yeah all this stuff makes sense so we assume oh okay I got it but actually like doing it requires you know it's a more complicated world you would expect that strategy today requires more effort than in the past. Ron, I want to ask you one question about um, how companies can defend their positions by taking these, you know, taking an ecosystem approach. And and one of the examples that always comes to mind for me as someone that has lived in in rural mountain communities most of my life is is Airbnb, right? So here is here is a business that um, you know obviously. I think probably had at least some of the tenets of taking this ecosystem approach. What they weren't able to predict was probably, I would assume, were the long-term implications of their success and their growth on, you know, property values, on, you know, the combined with shifting work environment and whatnot that has, has created real social and economic problems in communities around the world. Um, now we're seeing a lot of these communities trying to shut out Airbnb altogether or trying to, to regulate it. Um, just maybe using that as an example, like can, can companies find ways to, um, to protect their positions rather as well um, with this approach rather than just innovate and enter new markets or create new markets? So the answer is yes, definitely. Um, chapter three of winning the right game is ecosystem defense. Um, now, I would say your, your Airbnb story is actually, it's more about sustaining the position than defending the position. Um, sure. But they're related in the sense that, so, okay, the, 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 the examples in chapter three on ecosystem defense are Wayfair versus Amazon. Okay, Wayfair, this online furniture seller. And one day they wake up and Amazon says, furniture is our number one category. TomTom versus Google Maps. Okay, TomTom Tom sells GPS, then sells mapping service. Google is their number one client for mapping data until one day Google wakes up and says, hey, we've done it ourselves. And not only are we no longer your customer, we're your number one rival. And the price for accessing our data is zero. And the third example is Spotify versus Apple Music, right? Spotify still nascent. And here comes like the world's biggest company saying, Music streaming is our number one priority, right? How do these companies survive with these giant ecosystem players coming in to their world? Um, and so, so when I think about you know defense, it's that there's like a real offense. But related to your your your, your comment about Airbnb, it all comes back to the same thing, which is how do you so. You, ecosystem defense, if you're doing it alone, you're doing it wrong, right? You have to, the question is, how do you mobilize the coalition that you have in order to defend against this onslaught? And it's not that, and success in defense is coexistence, right? It's not that Wayfair is going to drive Amazon out of the furniture market. It's a miracle that, you know, Wayfair or TomTom or Spotify are still viable in the face of someone selling a really similar product to theirs. Um and not taking over, you know, and still they have like very large markets. In the case of Spotify, they're substantially bigger than Apple Music. Um, and the answer is you need to think about the partners that you've aligned and how it is that they're going to see this threat. 
Now, what I would say, so so that's in, in kind of that, you know, takes an engine that I call a value architecture, which again is kind of chapter one begins to lay that out. Um, right. I keep trying to get people to to read this chapter, which is free, right? Like not. <laughs> how do you choose to not make yourself smarter about this? That's ecosystem alignment, no? <laughs> it's, it's yeah, I mean, that's actually part of the strategy. Like, long discussion like usually you wouldn't give away the entire first chapter yes. of a business book because most business books are one chapter stretched out over 300 pages. You know, here, you know, each chapter is actually a material contribution. So, you know, they're very I published this book with MIT Press, which was great. Um, and so they gave me the permission to post this. Um, early goings was very, very sensitive to this coalition building, right? There's this great contrast between how Uber, you know, would go into these geographies, break the rules, and essentially hope to be su sufficiently established before institutions were really mobilized against them so that they could use their customers to, you know, to text the city council and say, no, 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 let Uber keep functioning. Whereas Airbnb from the outset worked, you know, quite collaboratively with local communities. And I think part of what happened there is they just became substantially more successful than anybody thought. I'm sure even within Airbnb as well, right? Which by the way, like a you know, sub bullet, it's not that you're going to predict the future, right? You just want to have, a sense of, of, of which way is north. So, so when things change, you know how you want to tap to them. Um, so, you know, where, where I think where Airbnb is today is that they're re-engaging with communities in a different way, right? In the beginning, it was, you know, engaging and they kind of give me a little bit of freedom to operate. Whereas now it's, it's trying to demonstrate, it's, it's trying to, um, reframe themselves as someone you shouldn't be afraid of, right? And for them to be successful, I think they, they realize that, look, they can't beat regulation, right? So they're taking this very seriously. And, you know, the question from a community perspective is, we allowed them to lead, right? Kind of the communities were, were basically taking a back seat. And now communities are trying to, you know, different communities, partly spurred on by other interests like, you know, large hotel chains um, are saying, no, no, we should redefine the rules. And, you know, success for Airbnb is going to be, you know, how do we define the truce? And doing that, the, 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 the more they're able to activate the partners that they've picked up along the way, right? All the restaurants that they're now linking to, all the activities that they're now linking to, and have them support the community discussion, the more favorable the truce will be to Airbnb. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Right. But again, it's all, you know, the, the whole strategy story here basically requires us to zoom out and really see who else am I interacting with? Could I be interacting with? And how do I think about that joint value proposition rather than just, you know, how do I, how do I become the best version of me, right? And in, in ignoring the rest. Wow, that really interesting. Yeah, didn't, it makes a lot of sense, you know, using that Airbnb example to be like, realize that 
okay, this is having an impact on on small businesses and restaurants and other stakeholders in the ecosystem. And how do you, how can you leverage those, you know, strong positive relationships to reframe their their position and and their trust in the in the broader ecosystem? Cool. Yeah. Right. And and there's nothing that 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 mandates that that's going to be something they do, right? But if you step further, you know, you ask the right questions and you step back, new combinations emerge. Ron, really interesting. Um, I want to be cognizant of of your time, uh, taking up your your Wednesday morning, um, and want to uh, still have the chance to kind of ask our last three questions that we we ask all of our guests. Um, most of them don't like it, but they get them they get them anyway. So um, the first one is um, maybe a few words of wisdom as uh, as someone has that has been a, a thought leader and a thinker on such important topics for the better part of a few decades now. What advice do you have for, for your younger self or, or for the next generation um, that you wish you had known when you first became a scholar? Um, you know, it's interesting. When, when I started out, my, my work was kind of distant from where the mainstream was. Um, I did work on you know, demand heterogeneity. And even when I started with, with ecosystems, it was not, it, it was thought of as a very risky kind of thing to do professionally. Um, and I, I think the, you know, the advice, you know, the, the advice that I was, that, that I, I, I was given that I took and that I would pass on is your best bet is to do something that, you know, that you're interested in, that you, that you think you can dig into. Right? So it's not enough to be interested. It's not enough to be passionate. It's like, can you dig into something so that you can show up with something new in it? Um, and, you know, it's like the most useful advice ever given to me by my, my doctoral advisor. He was a dear friend. Um, and as, as I was stressing out, you know, my dissertation was, you know, it was like three steps removed from where the, the, the field was. Right? It was like about demand. It was, innovation was not a big thing. It was about the demand side of innovation, and I was using computer simulations. And you know, it was hard, you know, people didn't know what box to put me in. And he gave me this the only like real advice that is totally useful and at the same time totally profound, which is do good work, good things will come. Right. And just keep digging at some point, something will happen. So again, the advice I give my younger self is do that and, and stress out less about that. Right. Like that's the, the one thing you have control over is are you doing work you think is good? Right. And then, you know, random things will happen. Um, the thing to keep in mind is success, it just needs to arrive at some point. Right. It doesn't have to arrive all at once. And by the way, after it arrives, then you worry about it leaving. Right. So just like, you know, be the guardian of your own interests. And at some point, good things will happen. And by the way, kind of the, the gorillas, and if they don't, at least you will have enjoyed the journey. <laughs> right? Like at least, you know, you have a sense for why you tried it, as opposed to just, you know, following whatever the, the, the latest wave is. Ron, that's one of my favorite pieces of advice that I've heard from a guest, I, because I share that a lot with 
with young entrepreneurs is, you know, focus on what's within your locus of control. And if you've put too much energy to, to things that are outside of that, is that's where the sleepless nights happen. Yeah. Now, mind you, I, I don't want to contradict everything we just said, which is <laughs> you are in an ecosystem. You do want to think broadly, but part of you know, it's, you know part of look part of an ecosystem strategy is you need to know what you're contributing, and then you can think about how to line things up. Right. So it's not oh, just put on blinders and and, and just focus on what you can do, but it's if that is a, it's not a sufficient condition, but it's necessary that you know why you're doing what you're doing. No, and I think the important, you know who's of, play with you. the important thing of your book, I think, is that you show that your ecosystem is not exogenous, that, that your ecosystem is endogenous. You can shape your ecosystem. And actually, yeah. it's how you shape your ecosystem that for a large extent might drive your success. And I think yeah. that's, for me, one of the fascinating things of your books, that, that it's not like... Just focusing on my execution is not enough. No, I need to take this wider lens and I can influence, I can shape it, and that will influence my success. Yeah, no, I, I, that's exactly right, right? Your ecosystem is under your control. It's endogenous. And by the way, the little twist is what that means is that the ecosystem that a given actor or a different company can create successfully, going after the very same value proposition will look different than the ecosystem of a different company going after the same value proposition, right? Which, which again, takes us back to that's why you really need to have a strategy because, you know, in an industry world, you can, you can look at best practice and just copy off the other person's test, essentially. Here, you really need to create it for yourself. Yeah, your ecosystem is endogenous. Exactly right. All right, Ron, two more quick questions. Um, what book can you recommend? What is on your bedside table? And I'm going to make you exclude the wide lens or winning the right game to answer this question. <laughs> no, I would not be so presumptuous. Uh, <laughs> well, they're, you know, they're worth reading for sure. Um, I'll actually, I'll give you two recommendations. Um, one is a book called Warp Speed that just came out by a uh, guy, Paul Mango, who had worked in, 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 in Operation Warp Speed. And it's, uh, you know, Warp Speed, the vaccine initiative, it's such a, it, 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 you know, for all the, 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 the bad that came out of that administration and the challenges, et cetera, that vaccine initiative was, is a demonstration of here's what happens when the public and the private sector can work together. Um, and really, I mean, it's a beautiful demonstration of what successful ecosystem creation and reconfiguration looks like and the role that government can play as you know leading an ecosystem um and then the other but kind of the, the academic book i would recommend is called uh, evolutionary processes and organizational adaptation um so that's a book by dan leventhal my you know my mentor and friend um that kind of puts together so he's you know incredibly thoughtful and very very prominent academic in the, in the world of organizational learning and adaptation. And just kind of this summarizes in, a, in, a, in an interesting way, 40 years of work. Um, so I think that's, uh, I found that to be a really interesting read as well. All right, one last, one last question. Uh, the topic of Spotify and Apple Music came up a few times. Uh, so what's cycling on your playlist? What are you listening to? Um, well, I'm, this is going to be newly on my on, on, on my playlist. 
Um, <laughs> the other podcast I've, I've gotten into lately is, is called Acquired, um, mm. where these guys do a real deep dive into like individual corporate cases. And I think what's um, part of what I really like about it is it's a deep dive, right? Just like our, you know, like our conversation. I think it's, we're, we're moving into a world where under, understanding complex systems takes more work. It takes more time. It takes more attention. And at the same time, we're like in a world where attention is so, it's not just, it's, it's hard to capture, but it's hard to like signal to people. No, it's, it's required to play the game. So I'm kind of, there's a kind of a back of my mind kind of, the concern is on the, what's being served up to people, you know, particularly younger people right now is, you know, constant change of whatever content they're looking at. And so how do you go deep? So anything that goes deep, I am now like a, a, a newly uh, strong advocate. Yeah, we need more of that in the world when we're get when society seems to be getting more surficial, superficial, the deep dives are, are, are great. Those are my favorite podcasts. However, it's hard to sometimes parse off a two hours to go deep on the topics that you want to. So where, where do you listen to your podcast, Ron? For me, I, I'm either gym or, or driving. Gym, driver, walking. You know, of course, the secret is many of these podcasts you could listen to at one and a half speed, right? And so <laughs> that's kind of the question of what's, you know, what's the limit on that? Um, but um, yeah, no, that, that, that's been my... <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of discovering new time, which by the way, it's, it's interesting. It's like, I think it, it, it's, it's made it harder for people to find time to read books. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I, I guess that's why audiobooks are growing. I'm actually scheduled to record the audiobook of winning the right game later this summer, I hope. Um, so, you know, be on the lookout for that. But this was, this was really great. I really enjoyed the conversation. Same, Ron. It was uh, an absolute pleasure to to have you here. I feel like we could have gone deeper on on so many topics. So um, I I know I learned a, a lot in this process. So it was a it was a pleasure to have you. Well, it was a, it was a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation, and uh, hopefully this will be helpful to people. And um, you know, again, last plug on my webpage is um, both the chapters. And some resources to help uh, help teams guide these discussions, um, and it's all free. So um, I, I invite anyone and everyone to you know. My line is is share this with your hide, share this with your friends and hide it from your enemies, right? <laughs> Meaning, if your rivals figure out how to how to think this way before you do, you're in big trouble. But if your allies don't know how to think this way, you're going to be a lot less effective as a coalition. So. Yeah, I hope people. I hope this is useful, and I hope people uh, people share. No, I can tell it. I use them in my MBA teaching. So in my MBA classes, students have to build the ecosystem value blueprints. They have to do the minimal viable ecosystems, and it is always right? triggers. Yeah, it always triggers very nice discussions. I have to say. So. Oh, I'm delighted. I'm delighted. <laughs> Actually, I'd love to follow up with you and find out how you're using it. It'd be great. <laughs> you have at least one fan. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. One is where we start. Well, folks, that was Ron Adner, best-selling author and professor of business administration at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. To learn more about Ron's work and read the first chapters of his, of his incredible books for free, go to ronadner.com, which we'll be sure to put in the show notes of this episode. 
Of course, please stay tuned for some exciting new episodes coming up during these last dog days of summer. And until then, if you like this show, be sure to give us a, a follow and a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast streaming service. And if you didn't like it, just skip that part. Bis nächstes Mal.